0: Today's first reading comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, verse 1 to 6, which can be found on Church Bible, page 741. Who has has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. second part of reading comes from the book of John, chapter 19, verse 17 to 24, which can be found on Church Bible, page 1087. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Gogotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a note, notice prepared and fastened to the cross. He read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews but that this man claimed to be king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get get it. This happened, then the scripture might be fulfilled that said, They divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldier did. And we move on to verse 28 to 30 on the same page. Later, later, knowing that everything has now been been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put a sponge on the stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Could you keep your Bibles open, please, at John 19? And let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the way we see here, your amazing plan of redemption for all of us. And I ask that by your mighty spirit, you would speak to each one of us this evening, that we may hear and receive what you have to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. I was... You've heard already uh, in Rachel's prayers, today is Palm Sunday, when the church traditionally remembers the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem the week before he died. The crowds were there laying palms on the road, greeting him with shouts of blessing with Hosanna and so on. And it was some of them, no doubt, who a few days later were shouting for him to be crucified. How fickle is the human heart. At St. Michael's, it's our custom on this Sunday to preach about the cross, since next Sunday with the children, we'll be rejoicing in the resurrection. Growing up, I used to be puzzled about the cross. I knew it was at the heart of the Christian faith, yet I also knew, and this is what puzzled me, that many people before and since have suffered just as much physical torture at the hands of their killers. Why was this death so special? Was it the supreme example of the noble way to die or the tragic end to an idealist dream? Why was it central to the New Testament writers? Listen to Paul. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's from 1 Corinthians 2. In Paul's mind, that that man of towering gifts and intellect, he was absolutely clear his resolution was to make sure that whatever else people knew They knew about the cross. And as we look at it in some detail, I trust that all of us, whether it's new to us or we've known it for some years, will have a fresh sense of the power of the cross to transform lives, your life and mine. First, let's remind ourselves about what actually happened, some of which um, MJ went over last week when looking at the arrest and trial of Jesus. Now, all four gospel writers have a slightly different angle on it, Uh, When I was practicing as a lawyer, um, a lot of my time was spent taking witness evidence uh, because of the particular area of litigation that I was involved in. And you could be as sure as anything, if four witnesses came to you and they had exactly the same story, you would say, this evidence is useless. They've obviously all got together. Whereas here, the main events come out, but they're all from a different angle, which is what you'd expect So first, we see Jesus in anguish in Gethsemane. You read about that in Luke 22. He says, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. Now, what did he mean about the cup? Well, particularly in the Old Testament, the cup is a symbol of God's wrath because on the cross, Jesus knew he would bear the wrath of God for the sins of the whole world, your sins and mine. Then, Jesus was betrayed by Judas and arrested. And again, I think MJ pointed this out last week. The thing you really notice is how he is totally in control. This is your hour, he says, as he's arrested when darkness reigns. And he then goes on to say, Do you think I cannot call on my father? And he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. Now, legion was 6,000 soldiers. In other words, Jesus knew he could back out of it, but he went through with it. Then he was disowned by Peter. He was mocked and beaten by the soldiers who, when they crucified him, divided his clothes among themselves. Look down at John 19, verse 23. There you have that very uh, thing happening. And then there was the injustice of it all. He was falsely accused of treason. He was crucified instead of a murderer. He was executed with two criminals. Yet he said of his killers as they were killing him, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And despite his suffering, he was still ready to save sinners. As he said to one of the two thieves on the cross who realized his sin, that man turned to Jesus and really called to Jesus for help. Jesus said to him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. Now as a vicar's wife throughout my life, I've had the privilege at various moments of being called to the bedside of somebody who's dying. And it's the most wonderful thing in the world when you know that they're a Christian, you can say to them, today you will be with Jesus in paradise. Today. There was darkness over the earth from noon till three. And the temple curtain was torn in two. And then there was that dreadful cry, which we call the cry of dereliction My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then the almost final words of Jesus, absolutely key to the significance of the cross. We've got it here in verse 30. Look there at verse 30. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head. And gave up his spirit. Note he gave it up. It wasn't taken from him. He gave it up. Now we're coming back to those words in a moment. An earthquake happened and the terrified centurion and the guards who saw all that cried out, Surely he was the son of God. These people standing there, as they watched all of this, said surely, surely he was the son of God. Now what can we learn from these events that I've just listed? Well, far from representing dashed hopes to a young idealist, it's clear that in Jesus' mind, he came expressly to die. He said several times to his disciples that he would be killed, and yet they didn't really take it in. You know about that. If you you read that wonderful passage about Jesus and the two disciples on the road to Emmaus when they don't recognize him, and they said, we had hoped that he would be the um, savior of Israel. Their hopes had been dashed because they had not taken in that Jesus was going to be killed and come back again. His death and resurrection were a necessity. To achieve his mission would involve identifying with sinners and almost unbearable suffering. Yet he went to his death voluntarily, not as some puppet strung along by events. As I said earlier, he was totally in control. Second, Note how amazingly the events of the cross fulfill Scripture. Now, Jesus speaks of that here in today's passage. Look at verse 24, uh, where they're tearing up the clothes. Uh, the soldiers are t- dividing his clothes, and they say, This happened that the Scripture might be fulfilled that said, They divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. That is a direct reference to Psalm 22. Then in verse 28 where it says later knowing that everything had now been finished so that scripture would be fulfilled Jesus said I am thirsty. Psalm 22 verse 15 talks about that his tongue sticking to his mouth. Verse 36. These things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled not one of his bones would be broken. We read about that in Psalm 34 verse 20. And there are two key passages in the Old Testament. Psalm 22, which begins with those amazing words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Isaiah 53, which was read to us earlier. These books were written hundreds of years earlier, and yet the prophets foresaw all these events that we're looking at today. Thirdly, the darkness symbolized the weight of sin, (coughs) the sin of the whole world, That fell on Jesus. And at that moment. As the sin of the world fell on him. He was separated from God. God forsaken. Not because he had sinned. He was sinless. But because he was bearing our sin. Yours and mine. And in Isaiah 59. (coughs) Isaiah says. Sorry excuse me. (coughs) God speaking through the prophet says. It's not that the Lord's arm is too short that he cannot save you, or his ear deaf that he cannot hear you, but your sins have made a separation between you and your God, so he will not hear. In other words, sin separates us from God, and the sinless Jesus was separated from God. Why? Because, not because of his sin, but yours and mine. Fourthly, the fact that the temple curtain between the holy place and the most holy place, was torn from top to bottom. That showed that the way had been made open by the death of Christ for anyone potentially to go straight into the presence of God. There was no more any need for the high priest to go there, and that only once a year. Totally different relationship with God was made possible. And fifthly, the words, It is finished. Now, the Greek behind that is tetelestai, which means paid. It was what in those days would be written on a bill. If you paid the bill, tetelestai was written across it. And so this was not a cry of failure from Jesus, but a cry of victory. He had accomplished what he'd come to do. It is finished. It's over. It's done. The price of our sin had been paid. There was nothing we could do. And nothing we needed to do. Today we might experience something on a far smaller scale. And whatever analogies you use always fall short. But the picture could be of a judge in his court handing down the fixed penalty to some guilty offender. You know, there's a fixed penalty. The offender is there in the dock. The offender is guilty. And the judge says, this is the fixed penalty. You are guilty. I have no choice but to convict you of this. And then the judge gets down from his bench and writes out the cheque himself. Now Charles and I had an experience a little bit like that some many years ago actually, in a Balti restaurant in Buckingham Palace Road. Uh, we'd gone there for a meal, for a curry, and we got chatting to a really nice couple at the next door table. They were from South Africa. And as you can imagine, Charles and the husband got talking about rugby. And they had a great chat about rugby. We had a really happy time. And they eventually got up and we wished them well and said we hoped they'd have a really good holiday in London. And then we finished our meal and Charles asked for the bill. And the waiter said, oh, but your bill's been paid. That South African couple had paid our bill. Now, that was our bill to pay. We owed the money. But that lovely couple, totally unasked, totally unexpectedly, in a sense, had paid it for us. Now, that's a a tiny, tiny, tiny way of uh, saying what Jesus did on the cross for us. We deserve to pay the penalty, which is death. We deserve it. And yet he freely died in our place. And the Bible describes what Jesus did in a number of ways. I'm just going to mention three. It speaks of him as our sacrifice, as our substitute, and as we've just been singing this evening, as our redeemer. First of all, our sacrifice. Now, the Bible teaches that sin is serious. It's very easy to say that confession, isn't it, at the beginning of the service, and almost say it lightly. Not really, really realize what we're saying. Sin cuts us off from God, and ultimately, unless something is done about it, it will cut us off from Him eternally in Romans 6.23 we read that the wages or penalty of sin is death not just physical death but spiritual death which leads a, leaves a person insensitive to God and cut off from God and that's why it can be very difficult sometimes to talk about our faith you go into the office tomorrow and you talk about going to church and if they don't laugh at you people will just sort of it just never crosses their radar they are spiritually dead They are insensitive to the Spirit of God. And to satisfy the demands of justice, the holy God must punish sin and the sinner must die. Now, is there a way in which God can punish sin without producing an irreversible separation between himself and the whole of humanity? For all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Can God show love without condoning sin? the answer lies in the sacrificial death of God's Son, which is a solution foreshadowed by Old Testament sacrifice. The cross satisfies both the justice and the love of God. Yes, as Paul said, the wages of sin is death, but that verse goes on, Romans 6.23, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The books of Leviticus in the Old Testament and Hebrews in the New spell out the meaning of sacrifice and help us understand how the coming of Christ brought a totally new dimension to the whole concept. Listen to these words from Hebrew. Leviticus, if you like, if you've ever looked at it, and it is worth going through. There's there's a lot of stuff in there, but it really sets out all the sacrifices that really were foreshadowing the ultimate sacrifice, the Lamb of God, again, we sang tonight about the Lamb of God who is Jesus. And listen to these words from Hebrews 9. Hebrews, if you like, takes the Old Testament sacrifices in Leviticus and shows how Jesus has fulfilled all of those. Listen to this Christ has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once. And after that to face judgment. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. <clears throat> Note how many times the words once, once for all appear. In fact, if you read Hebrews 9, it appears again and again. Now this means that in Holy Communion, which we're going to take in a moment, there is no re-sacrifice of Christ. You will come across some teaching that says every time communion is taken, Christ is being re-sacrificed. That is just not true. The Bible tells us he was sacrificed once. And it is wonderfully comforting, for we can know that Christ died once for all the sins we have committed or will ever commit. It also means that the basis of forgiveness is the same, both for those who lived before the death of Christ and for those like us who lived after. Now, a very thoughtful young couple, about the same age as most of you, came up to me after the morning service and just said, Tricia, you know, can you explain that a bit? And and really what it's saying is that death of Christ happening when it did was effective for all time, for all people in all places. Now, it's hard for us, in a way, to imagine how somebody living in Old Testament times could be saved by the death of Christ, which was to happen later. But that is the fact. All, we can only come to God through Christ and through his sacrifice. And note two, please note, there is no second chance after death. There is no reincarnation. Which is why we don't pray for the dead, you will sometimes come across people after somebody has died and they, they're praying for the dead, as it were, to get through salvation. But it's not there. It's not allowed in scripture. We can thank God for the dead. We can thank God as I guess all of us do for the many people who've gone ahead of us, who have helped us and encouraged us. We cannot pray. We must not pray for them to be saved. It's too late then, which is why we should have a real sense of urgency about sharing our faith with those who do not know God. But for those who die in Christ, Christ says to them, just as he said, and I mentioned earlier, to the penitent thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now, two things. First of all, the blood of Christ. Some people dislike the idea of being blood-bought, or old hymns, which I think we never sing now, which speak of fountains filled with blood. And it's important to understand that to speak in this way of blood is to use spiritual language, symbolic language. Because in scripture, bloodshed represents life poured out. So it says in Hebrews 9.22, which is a reference back to Leviticus 17, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. That's the blood of Christ. Then there's the wrath of God. In Romans 3.25, when speaking of Christ as our sacrifice, uh, Paul says this, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Now that word atonement comes from a medieval Latin word, means uh, a making at one of those who are estranged. And the NIV study Bible on this verse says this. The Greek for this phrase speaks of a sacrifice that satisfies the righteous wrath of God. Without this propitiation, all people are justly destined for eternal salvation punishment in other words this is a spiritual law just as the law of gravity is a physical law now you like me may not like the law of gravity you may hate the idea of a toddler falling out of a third uh, story in fact quite a few years ago there was a very famous um, pop star rock idol whose toddler fell out of a skyscraper in new york and it was horrible And we may not like the law of gravity, but it's there. So we we don't say, well, I don't like it, so I'm going to ignore it. Of course not. We saw the law of gravity is there, therefore I will put bars on my children's windows so they cannot fall out. There are laws in the universe just like that. Some object to the idea of the wrath of God. But this is not talking of a God who loses his temper in an uncontrolled or impulsive rage but the relentless anger of a just God against all that is evil. Now, that is the anger that you and I feel when we think of the Holocaust, or prisoners being beheaded by terrorists, or a child being abused, or an elderly person being tortured and robbed. That is what we mean by the wrath of God against all that is evil. And writer Wayne Grudem has said, In this, that we see something of the amazing love of God the Father and Jesus the Son. Not only did Jesus know he would bear the incredible pain of the cross, but God the Father knew he would have to inflict this pain on his deeply loved Son. And they did it because they loved you and me. Because God loved the world so much, he initiated it all. Next, our substitute. For the unbeliever, Christ is his substitute, since Christ does not commit sin and we cannot make atonement. Christ did something on the cross that no human being could ever do. So we say that Christ died in our place, on our behalf. And then our Redeemer. The Bible speaks of Christ as our Redeemer in many places. In Galatians 3.13 we read, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law." having become a curse for us. The Old Testament says that anyone hangs on a tree, anyone who is crucified is cursed. And Christ became a curse for us. Now the picture here is that of slavery. Before conversion, we humans are enslaved to sin. We don't realize it, of course. And we can't help sinning. It's part of our nature. But once we become Christians, sin becomes painful. It's not that we stop sinning but it goes against our new nature to sin. It should hurt. We become a new person, empowered and filled by the Holy Spirit, and we discover power to live lives that we didn't have before. Christ then is said to redeem us not only from the penalty of the law, from eternal death, but from the power of sin, the power of Satan, and future judgment. And Jesus himself said, Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and this is the point, to give his life as a ransom for many. As our Redeemer, he redeemed us back by paying the ransom of his life. Now we can sum all this up in an illustration which some of you will have seen before, but I always find it helpful. Here is me with my sin. Here is the person who can't get through to god everybody whoever you talk to i guarantee if you ever say to somebody at work have you ever prayed and they may well say yeah i tried praying but i couldn't get through to god it was as if my prayers were hitting the ceiling and falling back isaiah 59 you heard what i said earlier our sins have made a separation between us and god so the reason we can't get through to god is sin here is jesus completely unbroken relationship with the father Isaiah 53 verse 6 says, all we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way. Brilliant definition of sin, turning to our own way. And then Isaiah 53 verse 6 goes on, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So the way was made open for you and me to have that relationship with God. And Jesus on the cross cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He felt, indeed, he was abandoned by God because at that moment he was bearing your sin and mine. I still find that incredibly moving. So how can you and I experience the power of the cross for ourselves? How can it become real in our life? Well, there are a number of things we need to know. First, it's all about grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. As someone once said, there's nothing you can do to make God love you more. And there's nothing you can do to make God love you less. That is how a cruel slave trader like John Newton could be converted through the grace of God. And so he wrote that that amazing hymn about amazing grace. It's how a Paul who described himself as a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent man could come to Christ. And and I feel passionately that, that people who are not Christians need to hear that. They think in the church we're just there to condemn And to judge others, that that's what God does. But God has to condemn sin, but equally he's made a way through it because he loves us. And it's not as if he said, please be good and then you can experience my love. The Bible says, while we were still his enemies, Christ died for us. While we were still enemies, Christ died for us. People need to hear that the cross satisfied both the holiness... And the love of God. God in his holiness saw to it that sin was punished in the death of his son. And his in love for us saw to it that we could receive eternal life. Anyone, no matter what their past or their present, who turns to him in repentance can receive that precious gift of eternal life today. That is grace. Secondly, when someone accepts Christ as their Saviour, they're then accounted righteous in God's eyes for all time, not because they've suddenly become good, but because when God looks at us, He looks at us through Jesus tinted spectacles, and we're then said to be justified. It is just as if I had never sinned. That is something that happens once for all, and your legal status before God is changed. You can't go back on it. It is just like getting married. One day you're single, the next day you're married. Something has happened legally to change your status. You don't feel any different, but you are different. It's exactly like that with God. And we need to ask God for forgiveness each time we sin. Having to go on asking forgiveness does not mean that we go on asking to be justified. You're justified once for all. But finding ourselves falling again and again into the same sin... While it doesn't affect our eternal standing with God, it most certainly affects our moment-by-moment moment relationship with him. Therefore, we need to keep short accounts with God. And, you know, one of the things that I think are very, is very sad, because of the world in which your generation in particular lives in, the idea of sin has changed. Somehow, for some Christians, it's all right to sleep together, you know, because everyone's doing it. Somehow it's okay to... Lie about your income tax because everyone does it. All those things actually are sin in God's eyes, and we need to call out sin as sin and not try and excuse it and talk it away. But the power of the cross also means we can face death and face God without fear or condemnation, it means freedom from guilt. And it means peace with God. It means we can forgive others for the hurt they may have caused us. Perhaps when you were growing up, you were deeply hurt, either emotionally or physically. And as C.S. Lewis said, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. And finally, we need to know, you need to know how much God loves you, how inestimably precious you are to him John Stott said this my worth doesn't come from my career or my success or my friendships or my relationships, my worth is what I am worth to God and that is a marvellous great deal for Christ died for me Christ died for me the cross became very important to me in fact, it's the reason that I'm a, a Christian. When I was my second year at university, in the Christmas vacation, I had to read a book by a Spanish philosopher called Unamuno, who always wanted to believe but never quite got there. He was a nihilist, really, and he wrote a book about a priest who loses his faith. And he says nothing because he is priest of a very poor village, and this his flock, he wants them to have this wonderful dream. Um, that after this terrible life they're living, there is heaven, though he no longer believes in it. And after he dies, his housekeeper comes across some writings and discovers to her horror that he'd lost his faith. And that really hit me, because I said, gosh, do all the priests I know, are they all kidding us too? And at the same time that Christmas, a a middle-aged family friend died while on holiday in Switzerland very suddenly, and I, in my naivety, had thought only elderly people die. I came back to uni. Uh, I'd been very good at, um, when I was with Christians, talking the language. I knew the language. But I made jolly sure when I was with people who were not Christians that I steered all conversation away so I wouldn't be put on the spot. And I went through three weeks of what I can only describe as a kind of hell. For the first time in my life, I began to doubt the very existence of God. It was so dark. It was awful. And one evening, um, I did what we always say you shouldn't do. I opened my Bible like that. And it opened at a book I'd never read, the book of Hebrews. And I think it's in chapter 2 where it says, Christ has suffered in every way as we have, yet without sin. And I said aloud to God, Jesus doesn't know what this feels like. Feeling abandoned, feeling forsaken, wondering if you're even there. And almost as soon as I'd said that, his words from the cross came into my head. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And for the first time in my life, I understood the agony of the cross. Of course, the physical agony was awful, but the deep agony was the spiritual agony of being separated from his father for me. And I just said, Lord, if you did that for me, there's nothing I wouldn't do for you. And as I said this morning, I had a little plan for my life. I was reading languages. I was going to come to uh, London, um, get into the foreign office, travel a bit, meet a nice wealthy man and settle down. And I had this, <laughs> I had this great fear that if I committed my life to Christ, that wouldn't happen. And, uh, but at that moment, I just said, Lord, I'll do anything for you and I became an all-right Christian. I have to say, if you told me, as I said this morning, I was going to become a vicar's wife, I would have died. (laughs) I would have died. But I have also to tell you, it has been the most wonderful, wonderful life. It's been the greatest adventure, full of joy, yes, sorrows too, but an amazing life that I could never have imagined if I'd let if I'd said to God, No, I'll do it my way. Now how can this become real for you. Maybe there's someone in church today who's never heard this before, or maybe you've never understood the cross before. You hate the way you're living now but feel you'll never change. That is a lie. The power of the cross could transform your life. Turn to the risen, living Christ who died for you. Tell him how sorry you are for your sins that sent him to the cross. Ask him to come into your life. Maybe you've been a Christian for many years and have forgotten this amazing truth. Maybe that thing of going up for communion, you know, it just kind of washes over your head. Or maybe there's sin in your life right now that you have ignored. Take this opportunity to thank him again that he died on the cross for that sin. And rededicate your life to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for the way you speak to us through your word. I pray that all of us, wherever we're coming from tonight, and Lord, you alone know the secrets of our hearts. Help all of us to get ourselves right with you and experience the power of the cross that is available for every single one of us here this evening. In Jesus' name, amen.